had the privilege of receiving a text at about 4.45 in the afternoon on Friday uh, informing me that Pastor Patrick was a little bit under the weather and not feeling all that great, um, I realized that I was in for it because as much as I've been preparing for sermons and I I've, I've have sermons prepared, what he asked me to do was, was prepare something on the gospel. I mean, we're approaching Easter, we're approaching Resurrection Sunday, looking at Good Friday, looking at the cross, looking at the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I realized that I don't really have a gospel message prepared as much as I would like. And then it dawned on me, but wait a minute, I'm teaching through Romans with the college group. And Romans 1 through 4 is all on the gospel. And we had just finished Romans 4 on Thursday night, so I thought, oh, There you go. We're going to take a tour of Romans 1 through 4 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Romans, this great letter that Paul wrote about the gospel. Well, last Thursday, um, we had the privilege of of finishing up Romans 4 in our college ministry, and it was a great evening of study and looking at the gospel and looking at everything that it is. And afterwards, we did a very spontaneous thing, and we went out and saw Captain America. Winter Soldier. Oh, what a fantastic, stressful movie, if you like stressful movies. My wife's neck was a knot. It was just, it was great. But being a physical therapist, I can work on those kinds of things, you know? So that works. While we were waiting in line, a man approached us um, and asked for some assistance. You know how that happens when you're waiting somewhere. And it was very interesting because this man didn't hide anything. He didn't make up a story. He basically said, you know, I'm, I'm down on my luck. I have substance abuse issues. I have addiction issues. I just need a little bit of something so that I can grab a meal and maybe get something to eat and try and get back on my feet. And, and my wife, being the more spiritual of the two of us that night, started presenting the gospel to this man. And I stood behind her and listened, and I just waited to see what would happen. And I waited, and he kind of cut her off and didn't really let her get going. And then he he said, well, thank you very much, and walked away. To which she turned around to me and said, it would have been nice if you'd given me a little backup. (laughs) Well, yeah, right? I I am kind of trained to do that kind of stuff. It would have been nice. And I, I, I wasn't thinking. I just wasn't, I, I let my wife do the thing. I, as Tracy was doing a great job, and then it just kind of ended. And he walked away, and I thought, oh, man, you're right. Lord, I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't take the opportunity to, to share with him. Well, then I realized, I saw him walking. One of our other college students said, you know what, Mr. Nix, I'm going to go after him. I'm like, okay. Again, I didn't go with him. I just let him go, thinking, okay, he'll share the gospel, right? Opportunity number two. In baseball, you get three strikes, right, before you're out? Well, then I realized that I saw another one of our college students approaching. I'm like, okay, Lord, you're not letting me off the hook on this one, are you? And I said to Tracy, I'll be back. And I made a beeline for this gentleman and had the opportunity just to meet him. His name is Samuel. Talk to him about what is going on in his life and then share the gospel with him. In sharing the gospel... His response was the typical response that I see so much of the time 
when it comes to asking them, what do you want to do as a result of this? And he just said, I need to forgive myself first before I can seek anybody else's forgiveness. And then he just quietly said, thank you very much. I appreciate your prayers and walked away. And it made me heartbroken because the gospel, as, Ro- as Romans says in Romans 1.16, it says, I, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. And I looked at my thing and my situation and was I ashamed of the gospel those first two times I had the opportunity? As I began contemplating what the gospel is, it is the power of God, Paul writes, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The gospel went out that night, and I had the opportunity to preach the gospel to this gentleman. It was a short, you know, five-minute gospel presentation, if that. But we hit on four big points. We hit on who God is. We hit on who man is. We hit on what man needs. And then I asked for a response. And those are the four things about the gospel that we must remember. A couple of months ago, I was reading a blog by Al Mohler. And if you know anything about Al Mohler, he is just absolutely brilliant man. President of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, preacher, teacher, author, conference speaker, radio host, blog, blogger. I mean, this guy, he sleeps, I think, three hours a night, reads ten books a week. He's just amazing. So I, I read an article by him, or a blog by him. It was, it was talking about the godly use of social media. And one of the things that he said was that if you are a Christian on social media, you have an obligation to share the gospel. You have an obligation to share the gospel. And as I began thinking about that and, and knowing that Tracy had a Twitter account, I, I kind of got a little jealous of that. I thought, well, maybe I ought to get a Twitter account. So I did. I'm trying to keep up with 21st century technology. For those of you that know me, you know I hate technology. But it's important for us to be engaged in society and engaged in the culture and engaged with the gospel in society. So I went ahead and signed up. I follow a bunch of my favorite authors and theologians and preachers, and and it's fantastic. And you know what I see? I see these men of God preaching the gospel in 140 characters or less. And that's amazing to me. And I love that. Al Mohler is right. We as Christians need to be engaged in the culture through social media, and it is our responsibility to represent Christ on that platform. David Platt, Christian author, he says this. He says, Every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. And that's true. Later this week, there's going to be a conference over in Louisville, Kentucky, called Together for the Gospel. Men and, and are going to be speaking at this conference. John MacArthur, Al Mohler, Steve Lawson, R.C. Sproul, uh, Legan Duncan, Mark Deaver, all of these amazing men of God. They're Baptists, Presbyterians, Reformed, Leaky Dispensationalists, Sensationists, I'm sorry, not sensationists, cessationists, continuationists, pre-tribulational premillennialists, amillennialists. In other words, these guys have all kinds of different views, varying views on what the Bible says about maybe some unclear topics. 
But one of the things that they all agree on, that they want to come together for, is the gospel. Because the gospel matters. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So, what is the gospel exactly? We've all heard it. We've all made a response to it. I'm wise enough now in my years to realize that not everyone in this room has submitted themselves to it. Are you able to articulate it? What is it about the gospel that must be shared? Well, instead of answering that question for you, let me answer a different question. What is not the gospel? What is not the gospel? The gospel is not Jesus is Lord. Now, I know that may strike you as very odd and maybe even heretical. Don't get me wrong. That statement is absolutely true in every way, shape, and form. I believe it. It is magnificently true. It is absolutely essential to the gospel message. But alone, it is not the gospel. Think about that statement for a second from the perspective of a non-believer. From a non-believer. That statement, Jesus is Lord, implies that there is someone who is in charge and is able to judge. And when you think about that, that really isn't good news for a non-believer. Because we know that the wrath of God sits upon a non-believer. What we need to add to this is the reality that this Lord Jesus has been crucified so that sinners may be forgiven and brought into the joy of his coming kingdom. Apart from that, the declaration that Jesus is Lord to a non-believer is nothing but a death sentence. Well, the gospel is also not creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's an actually a, a great way to summarize the Bible's main storyline. Fantastic. But unfortunately, it's been used by some to place the emphasis of the gospel on God's promise to renew the world, rather than on the cross. Listen to a man named Greg Gilbert and what he says about the gospel when it comes to thinking about it in the terms of Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. It's often presented as something like this. The gospel is the news that in the beginning God created the world and everything in it. It was originally very good, but human beings rebelled against God's rule and threw the world into chaos. The relationship between humans and God was broken, as were people's relationships with each other, with themselves, and with their world. After the fall, however, God promised to send a king who would redeem a people for himself and reconcile creation to God once again. That promise began to be fulfilled with the coming of Jesus Christ, but it will finally be completed or consummated when King Jesus returns. Everything in that paragraph is absolutely true. And I believe everything written in that paragraph. But it is not the gospel. Where is the cross? Where is repentance? Where is faith and belief? It's not the gospel. If Jesus is Lord is not the gospel, and creation, fall, redemption, consummation is not the gospel, there's one more thing that's also not the gospel, and that is cultural transformation. Cultural transformation is not the gospel. 
the idea of seeing culture transform through the work of Christians seems lately to have captured the minds of many evangelicals. Think World Vision. What just happened at World Vision? What did they do in making an announcement to change their hiring practices to the name of Christ? How did that affect evangelicalism over the last week? How does that redeem the culture? The most fervent appeals are for people to join God in his work of changing the world rather than to repent and believe in Jesus. The Bible's storyline is said to pivot on the remaking of the world rather than on the substitutionary death of Jesus. And that is not the gospel. That is not even Christianity. That's moralism. So then what is it? Well, many people have been asked, and there were several descriptions that I wanted to read to you. And just listen to these descriptions of what people wrote when they asked, what is the gospel? The good news is God wants to show you his incredible favor. He wants to fill your life with new wine. But are you willing to get rid of your old wineskins? Will you start thinking bigger? Will you enlarge your vision to get rid of those old negative mindsets that hold you back? What does that sound like? It sounds like the prosperity gospel. How about this one? Here's the gospel in a phrase. Because Christ died for us, those who trust in him may know that their guilt has been pardoned once and for all. What will we have to say before the bar of God's judgment? Only one thing. Christ died in my place. That's the gospel. Not bad. Not bad. How about this one? The good news is that God's face will always be turned toward you regardless of what you have done, where you have been, or how many mistakes you've made. He loves you and is turned in your direction looking for you. Well, what about the passages in the Scripture that talk about God's wrath? What about the passages in the Scripture that talk about God's judgment? What about those? Well, what does Scripture say about the gospel? It has much to say. And specifically in Romans 1, it has very much to say. Romans 1, specifically in chapters 1 to 4, Paul has much to say about what the gospel is to his readers. Look in Romans 1 with me. In Romans 1, verses 1 to 7, Paul shows his readers who they are accountable to, namely to God. And he describes himself even in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He sets it out straight right from the, right from the start. They are accountable to God and his gospel. Next, he goes on to tell his readers that, the, that their problem is that they have rebelled against God. And you see that all the way from Romans 1, 8, all the way through chapter 3, verse 19. Thirdly, Paul reveals God's solution to humanity's problem, namely Christ, in Romans 3, verses 20 and 21. And then lastly, Paul tells them how they can be included in this salvation in Romans 3, 22 through 4, 25. That's the whirlwind. That's the overview. That's the umbrella of what we're covering this morning. And we can summarize this with four questions. Who made us and to whom are we accountable? What is our problem? What is the solution? And what must I do to be saved? 
And that brings us to what I really want to talk about this morning. There are four necessary elements that must be included in any gospel presentation so that we can get the gospel right to the glory of God alone. Four necessary elements that must be included in any gospel presentation so that we can get the gospel right. And these four elements are God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. These four elements are not only seen in Romans 1 to 4, but they're also in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. They're also in Acts 3, verses 18 and 19. These elements are in the Bible. Whenever the Bible reveals what the gospel is, you see these four elements. God, man, Christ, response. Well, let's look at God. Number one, let's look at God first from Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a bondservant or slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First off, we need to understand four things about God. God is the creator. God is the creator. If you look in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 20, Paul reveals that for since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. You can read about the creation of the world in Genesis 1 and 2. We see God's creative work in in that section of Scripture. Over six days, he creates everything in the universe. That is the God of the Bible. That is the God of the Gospel. That is the God that needs to be proclaimed mightily to all people. God is creator. Secondly, we need to see and understand that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of the birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. God has the ability to exercise authority over his creation. That's what God's sovereignty means. It is his ability to exercise authority over his creation. In Isaiah chapters 40 to 48, all nine chapters there are absolutely incredible description of God displaying his sovereignty, describing his sovereignty. In Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 13, we read this. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, 
and there will be none after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. And there was no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, who can reverse it? That is God, and that is the God of the Bible that we need to proclaim. He is creator, he is sovereign, and thirdly, he is also the just and righteous God. He is just and righteous. God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Look at what he says about himself in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. Moses wants to see him. Moses desires to see God's face. And he begs God, show me, show me your glory. And in Exodus 34, we see God's response to that. Verses 5 and 6. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, if you will, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet... He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. He is a just and righteous God, and he will judge. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Anytime God acts, he acts in accordance with his character, and it is right. Psalm 19, the psalmist, David, wrote about the works and word of God. And in verse 8, he talks about the word of God, and he says this, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. We need to know the precepts of the Lord. We need to know that God is a just and righteous God and that he always acts in accordance with what is right. It is necessary that God punish sin, for it it does not deserve reward. It is wrong and deserves punishment. Offending an infinitely worthy eternal being who is the standard for what is right requires an infinitely worthy eternal punishment. And that punishment is hell. Look at Romans again. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. And then down to verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. God will judge. God is not only the creator, he's not only sovereign, he's not only just and righteous, God also has wrath. And we need to understand that wrath, even as we present the gospel to whomever we're talking with. Look at Romans 2.5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous 
judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. So those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation is what they will receive. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. He intensely hates all sin. Look at Exodus verse chapter 32, verse 9. You know this passage. It's the golden calf incident. God looks down and sees what they're doing, and he says this to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. Matthew 25. We see Jesus talking about the parables of the virgins. And in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, he talks about judgment. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And you know what happens. The sheep and the goats are separated and they're spread apart. And he says to the goats, ultimately, that they are going to enter into eternal punishment. To those, in verse 41, they will say to those on the left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And that is hell. John 3, 36, Jesus says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. God's wrath is real, and it is fearful. Paul, later on in Romans, in Romans 5, verse 9, he says this, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That is good news. That is good news. God is creator. He is sovereign. He is just and righteous. And he has wrath. Secondly, second element that we need to remember is that we need to talk about man. And we need to talk about who man is. Ultimately, that man is God's image bearer. He is absolutely God's image bearer. We need to remember that. The Bible, Carl F.H. Henry says, the Bible does not define for us the precise content of the original image of God. We don't know exactly what that means, but man is made in the image of God. You remember Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We are made in the image of God and we have something of God's image that we need to share with the world. 
Paul back in Romans 1, verses 21 to 23. He says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then over in verse 25, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Something happened back in Genesis 3 in the fall, in the garden. Something happened where we gave up what we ought to have kept. Man is a personal, spiritual, eternal being with moral responsibility, resembling concretely the image of God. He is distinctly different from and special compared to all other created beings. He is eternal in the sense that his life began and it will end physically, but will continue in life with God or in death separated from God. Man was made in the very image of God and somehow well resembles his creator. The fact of a proper resemblance cannot be simply set aside into some figurative or metaphorical understanding. We have to understand that some concept of form and shape and substantiality is involved in the terms and therefore involved in the concept. We reflect the image of God. Paul ends, a theologian in his Moody Handbook of Theology, succinctly states, God created man in his own image and likeness. This does not refer to bodily form, since God is spirit, but a spiritual, natural, and moral likeness. In his spiritual likeness, man as a regenerated being may have fellowship with God. In his natural likeness, man has intellect, emotions, and will. To know and commune with God in his moral likeness, man may know and obey the precepts of God. That's who man is. Unfortunately, man destroyed that image. We need to understand that man is the image bearer and man is also, number two, the image destroyer. The image destroyer. Go to Romans 3. You know this passage well. Paul, quoting these Old Testament passages in Romans 3, beginning in verse 9 and 10, He says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is how the image was destroyed. The purpose of man's creation was the divine intention that he should glorify God, enjoy God's fellowship, and live his life in the will of God. And by this, accomplish God's purpose for man in the world. But when he decided to become his own God, he destroyed that image. And as a result of Adam's sin of disobedience, We have inherited his sin. We don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We became inherently corrupt and utterly incapable of choosing or doing that which is acceptable and pleasing to God. 
Romans 3.23. You know this verse. You've memorized it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. With no recuperative powers to enable him to recover himself, man is hopelessly lost. Man's salvation is thereby wholly of God's grace through the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I shared that with Samuel, he refused to accept that. He needed to forgive himself first, but he can't. He can't. He is utterly incapable. The consequences of Adam's sin have been imputed or transmitted or placed upon all men of all ages, with Jesus Christ being the only exception. Thus, all men are sinners by divine declaration, by nature, and by choice. Apart from Christ's redemptive work, man is under the judgment of God. And the people that you talk to when you share the gospel need to understand the judgment of God, the wrath of God. They are hopelessly and totally separated from God. They are spiritually dead. They're hostile to God. They're blinded by Satan. They're held captive to do the will of the prince of the power of the air. They're powerless to overcome sin's hold on this life, unable to understand the things of God, unable to please God, unable to walk in God's way, and incapable of living a spiritually fruitful and meaningful life. If we were to stop there, is that good news? No, it's not. Thanks be to God for Christ. So when we understand the gospel, we need to understand who God is. We need to understand who man is. And thirdly, we need to understand Christ. Number three, the third element that we need to know is Christ. All I have is Christ and nothing else. Romans 3, verses 20 and 21 Because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Who is the righteousness of God? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God, even through... The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. Now, we need to understand some things about Christ. Let me go through this quickly. Five things you need to understand about who Christ is so that you can tell them this good news about Christ. First off, he is the God-man. Christ is the God-man. You know the verses. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus identifies himself this way in John eight fifty eight, John ten thirty, And then later on, John writes another letter that says, those things that we have seen and we have heard, we testify about. That the Word became flesh, that the Word dwelt among us. We have seen Him, we have heard Him, we have touched Him, and we are witnesses for Him. Christ is the God-man. Second thing you need to understand about Christ is that He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One of God. In Luke 1, when the angel is visiting Mary, 
verses 32 and 33, we read, He, Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. He is the Anointed One. He is the Messiah. John 18, 36. Jesus answers Pilate during his trial. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is the anointed one of his kingdom. And he will rule. Number three, he also suffers for his sheep. John 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist recognizes Jesus and reveals him to his followers. He says the next day that he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what are we talking about when he says he's taking away the sin of the world? Paul tells us what he's talking about a little bit more clearly in Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We also read it again in Second Peter, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians five twenty one. Paul writes again, He God made him who knew no sin, he made Jesus sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the doctrine of penal substitution. It's the doctrine of double imputation. It's the doctrine that we contribute sin to our salvation. And in re- in re- and yet what we receive is Christ's righteousness. We give sin and we receive Christ's righteousness. What kind of an exchange is that? That doesn't make sense. And yet that is the great exchange that was made on our behalf. Our sin for Christ's righteousness. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And then later on in in the next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 18, he writes, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. But you know what? That doesn't end there. Christ is not dead. He is not a hanging, he is not hanging on the cross still. He is living. Christ is the God-man. He is the Messiah. He suffers for his sheep, and he is living. A couple of weeks from now, we're going to be able to celebrate Easter, and we're going to be able to say together, he has risen, to which you will respond, he has risen indeed. In Luke, when the women go to the tomb, 
the angel says, why are you looking for the dead among, I mean, the living among the dead? Don't be here. He's alive. Romans 8, Paul again. Romans 8, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And that's the fifth thing you need to know about Christ, is he is our mediator. He intercedes for us. When Paul wrote to Timothy that great letter in 1 Timothy, he wrote in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. God, man, Christ, and now response. The fourth element in the gospel that you need to understand is the response. What kind of response did Jesus expect when he shared or preached the gospel of the kingdom? Mark reveals that to us. In Mark 1, 15, he says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus says. What about Peter? Acts 2. That great passage, that great sermon at Pentecost, Acts 2.38, the people are cut to the quick. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent! And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 20, Paul He says the same thing in chapter 20 of Acts, verse 21. He's talking to the Ephesian elders here, and he says, You yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is our response? What should the response be when you hear the gospel? It should be twofold. It should be faith and repentance. It should be belief and repentance. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to have faith? Go to Romans 4. Go to Romans 4, verses 18 through 21. Talking about Abraham here. Paul writes, In hope against hope, Abraham believed that he might become a father of many nations, According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own, bo- his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, 
and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. What does it mean? It means to put our faith, reliance, and trust in Jesus to do what he has promised to do. Well, what exactly is it that we are trusting him to do? Let me read you something from this little book that uh, was written by Greg Gilbert. He says, he says this, When we trust Jesus to save us, we become united to him, and a magnificent exchange take, takes place. All our sin, rebellion, and wickedness is imputed or credited to Jesus, and he dies because of it. At the same time, the perfect life Jesus lived is imputed to us, and we are declared righteous. God looks at us, and instead of seeing our sin, he sees Jesus' righteousness. What are we trusting him to do? When we trust Jesus to save us, we become united to him, and we trust that he is going to see us perfect. He is going to see us, that God is going to see us in Jesus' perfect righteousness. And this is illustrated excellently for us in Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 5. It is absolutely perfect when Joshua the high priest is standing before God in filthy garments. And he says, take off those filthy garments and put on festal gowns. That sin is taken off, taken off from us. Again, one more little illustration from this book. He says, putting your faith in Christ means that you utterly renounce any other hope of being counted righteous before God. Do you find yourself trusting in your own good works? Faith means admitting that they are woefully insufficient and trusting Christ alone. Do you find yourself trusting that what you understand to be your good heart? Faith means acknowledging that your heart is not good at all and trusting Christ alone. To put it another way, it means jumping off the edge of the pool and saying, Jesus, if you don't catch me, I'm done. I have no other hope, no other Savior. Save me, Jesus, or I die. That is faith. Repentance is the flip side of that coin. If repentance is turning to Jesus, relying on him for salvation, I'm sorry, if faith is turning to Jesus and relying for him on, on him for salvation, repentance is the flip side of the coin. It is turning away from sin, hating it, and resolving by God's strength to forsake it even as we turn to him in faith. It is not optional. It includes accepting Jesus as Savior and submitting to him as Lord. You cannot have one without the other. Repentance is not perfection. It doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. It also doesn't mean you're never going to struggle with sin again. Just the opposite. Repentance is real change with real fruit. Thomas Watson, that great Puritan, says of repentance, I shall show what gospel repentance is. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. He then gives six ingredients of gospel repentance. That you gain sight of sin. You see your sin for what it is, an offense against a holy and righteous judge, and you hate it. You have sorrow for sin. It is godly sorrow. Because it produces the third thing, confession of sin. 
when David wrote Psalm 51, he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, but when he writes his confession, he says, to you, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Confession of sin. Fourthly, you have shame for sin. Like the prodigal who thought he was unworthy to be called a son, again, you have shame for sin. That develops into a hatred for sin. You hate what sin is. You hate what it does in your body. And it develops then a turning from that sin. That's true repentance. So, what is the gospel? The gospel is both bad news and good news. God is your creator and judge. You were created in his image to represent him, but you sinned against him, destroying that relationship, placing his wrath upon you, being deserving of hell. The good news is that Jesus died on the cross so that sinners like me and you may be forgiven of their sins if they will repent of their sins and believe upon and trust in the finished work of Christ alone for their salvation. That's the gospel. We're going to have an opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table this morning. And as I pray, we're going to pray for that time and pray for us, pray that this message hits home and that we live the gospel every day and preach it to ourselves on a daily basis. And at the end of my prayer, I want you guys just to stay quiet, keep your head bowed and your eyes closed, and just spend some time with the Lord confessing sin, repenting, so that you can come before him and participate in the Lord's table with a pure heart and with clean hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for allowing us the opportunity to know you, to know your Son, to believe and trust in Christ alone for our salvation. Lord, I ask that you would affect us and help our affections to be on Christ alone. That we would understand our salvation is accomplished in Christ alone, in his completed work on the cross exclusively. You are the creator God. You are sovereign. And your justice is perfect. Your wrath is on all of those who are in rebellion. And, and man is infinitely unworthy of your grace. And yet you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die that perfect death on the cross in our place, to be our substitute. That you penalized him and blessed us. Lord, help us. Forgive us of our sins. Help us. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness that we might turn to you and turn away from our sin. Go ahead and spend some time with your Savior as you contemplate what we're going to be doing together as we approach the Lord's table.